Welcome to episode 191. When you hear the word nutrition, what comes to mind? Is it kale? Is it salad? Is it a roast dinner? I'm almost certain it's not organ meats, like liver, kidney, heart, spleen, and all of the other bits and pieces that animals have, and you too. (laughs) If you're screwing up your nose right now, and or you're someone that genuinely wants better health for you and your family, or to reclaim the parts of your body that have begun failing you, then you have to listen to this episode, because we talk about the most nutrient-dense and natural foods that have been consumed since the first time a human being developed the ability to hunt. Foods that our genome are highly familiar with and conveniently happen to be the most nutrient-rich foods on Mother Earth. In this conversation, we bust some myths, talk about the history and culture of organ-based cuisine around the world, and of course, guide you on how you can add organ meats into your meals in a way that actually tastes good so that you can really level up the nutrition of you and your family. You ready? Let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Glad we've got you back here on today's show. In 2022, it's my mission to coach 300 people to get control of their emotional eating so they can lose weight and actually keep it off without counting calories or eating rabbit food. And as you know, I primarily work with women and particularly mothers. And the reason driving that is because I believe the path to a healthier world is through creating healthy mothers that raise and nurture healthy children. And if women and mothers can embody health themselves, then not only will they birth children with far less issues, but just maybe, just maybe the next generation and the generation after that will have a role model in their very own lives to follow so they themselves don't walk the path that medical prediction is expecting them to in getting truly healthy and building a body that was designed for survival. They might not totally be dependent on medication in the future in this pharmaceutically driven lifestyle that seems to be growing to keep them functioning as a normal healthy human food is the answer that's why this year's mission is to work with 300 mothers to make these permanent behavior changes in their lives because the health of you the health of your children and the potential of the next generation absolutely depends on it Someone else who is motivated to help level up the health of the world through whole real food nutrition is this legend, James Barry, who has had over 16 years in the culinary field and started out as a private chef cooking for celebrities such as, and can you believe this, Tom Cruise, Mariska Haggerty, George Clooney, Jared Butler, Sean Puffy Combs, Barbara Streisand and John Cusack. There's some heavy hitters. He's also a published cookbook author, most recently co-authoring the recipes in Dr. Alejandro Hunger's book, Clean 7. And I know James best for his herb, spice and food flavor collection, that being his first functional food product called Pluck, an organ-based all-purpose seasoning. Yes, you heard correctly, organ-based, but stick around because it's not as gross as your default thoughts might suspect. <laughs> Pluck is the first of its kind and an amazingly easy and delicious way for you to get organ meats into your diet. And if you're a regular listener, you know that I'm super passionate about getting organ meats back into the diets of both you, your kids, and hubby, if you're up for the battle. (laughs) James, my friend, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Maddie. Thanks so much for having me. You are so welcome. And just a quick shout out to uh, Angela Foster at High Performance Health for connecting us. What a legend. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, I'm so grateful to her. Yeah, I checked out the conversation you two had. It was a, it was a brilliant conversation. So I'm very glad that you're here to share your wisdom with the people of the world from my point of view. Um, so let's get into this organ meats. Most people are super repulsed by the idea of organ meats. However, we've had a massive history of consuming organs and many people before we had science and before we had Western medicine knew that organs were in incredibly nutrient-dense to the point that tribes used to, you know, give the liver or give certain organs to the woman that was planning to conceive. Uh, We know that animals, when they hunt, can even give particular organs to the the leader of the pack because they're so, you know, nutrient-dense. Where did things go wrong in our modern world that now we're all of a sudden repulsed by the most important part of these animals? 
Yeah, isn't that? I think that is such a great question. Um, and it's one that I've really <laughs> delved into deep. And you know, you know, where, um, of course, there's no clear answer. It's impossible to know exactly why everyone now associates it as being icky. Because uh, because if you think about it, our ancestors did it and you're you're going way, way back. But I'm talking like our grandparents. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's not that long ago. Like you talk to most people and they'll say, oh, yeah, my grandparents used to always have liver and onions. So it's like, well, what happened? It's it's like one generation, maybe two removed. It's like and suddenly no one's eating it. And yet chronic illness has increased. Right. This is I think we've now entered the age of where kids are expected to die before their parents. Yeah, I know. You know, so Terrifying. it's like, I, to, to me, I connect those dots. I'm like, well, wait a second. We're not eating nose to tail and chronic illness has increased. So maybe they're connected. But the, the clearest answer I have based on my research is that it's economics. That basically, uh, you know, around World War II, you had uh, sold. Well, you had a couple things. You had uh, potential protein shortage. So there was a lot of fear that we were going to run out of meat because so much protein was being sent abroad to the soldiers. And I'm mostly talking about U.S. history, but I don't know, maybe it, it was affecting other countries as well. But so in the U.S. at least, um, they started doing campaigns, educating people on organ meats and trying to encourage them to purchase. Because what had happened is that basically you were seeing organ meats as kind of a cheaper or poor person's food. And so they were, they literally in the U.S., they did a whole federal campaign to encourage people to think of organ meats as nutritious, as, as, you know, a great asset to the family. But then you had, when the wars were over, you had now men coming back to women that were working. So now you had two people in the household working. So you had technically a little bit more money to your, to your um, grocery, you know, that you could spend on your groceries. And I actually think what happened is that people started to go, oh, well, I can afford the more expensive cuts. So I'm going to purchase the more because organ meats aren't that expensive, you know, pound for pound. I mean, it's, it's the cheapest way to get, you know, 100% grass fed, grass finished beef. Um, It's, it's the cheapest way to buy it. You know, you can get the tongue, you can get the liver, the kidney, and it's all going to be under, you know, I'm talking U.S. dollars, it's all going to be under, you know, $5 a pound, where it's, you know, if you're trying to get quality meat, um, U.S. dollars, most of it's usually, what, nine or more, and way more, you know, a pound. So, so it's a cheap way to get, and I just think it was economics. And then eventually, you know, when you, you're not get in, getting it in your diet. You sort of lose the affinity for it. You lose the culinary knowledge for it. And now we have people who, despite their grandparents and even parents eating it, they don't eat it. Go figure. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think that economic thing makes sense because obviously when you look at a beast, there's so much more muscle compared to, you know, the one or one heart or the one liver uh, you know, so it's like, of course, we're going to, you know, harvest the muscle when there's so much more to be able to sell at the butcher or at the supermarket uh, as opposed to the other, which in theory, in economic theory, would mean that um, like liver should be worth a lot more than muscle because there's much less of it, right? <laughs> That's so true. You're, you're so right. And yet it isn't. It's 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 one of the cheaper parts. Yeah. And, and, and you know, to, to your point, it's like... Uh, I think I think one of the other issues is is sourcing. I think I think a lot of a lot of uh, meat processors, at least in the U.S. Now, New, New Zealand is really good about this. I don't know about Australia, but New Zealand is very good about this. They're really good about harvesting the entire animal, and they've got an entire mm-hmm. uh, economy built around that. I know a lot of their organs. Um, you know, a lot of them feed the supplement industry, and then also they they send them to China. So I, I know that they've got an economic system down for it. But here in the U.S., mm-hmm. it's like it's hard. I, I talk to tons of uh, small farmers and they tell me they don't even have access to their organs. You know, they, they have access to the liver. Really? They maybe have access to the kidney, maybe the heart, but they can't get anything else beyond that. Does it go into the uh, pet food industry? Is that where that stuff goes? Yeah, pet food. So it gets designated as not for human consumption and it goes to pet food and then to feed zoos and, you know, other animals. And then and then other stuff just gets tossed in the trash. 
you know, because it, it's all it's all dependent on what the meat processor sees value in. So if, if it takes extra time for them to cut out the pancreas, but they're not making any money off of it, why, you know, they don't see they don't see any value in it. So that's one of the things I'm really hoping to change. I mean, you, you started this episode out talking about your mission and one of my missions is I, I, I'm trying to get people to eat more organ meat because I truly believe in my heart of hearts that organ meats can save the world. And, and why I say that is, is one is when we eat nose to tail, we're utilizing more of the animal. We're making that animal's life worth more, you know, on, on an ethical standpoint, on an economical standpoint. Uh, energetically, I think, I think, you know, you look back at any tribes, you know, Native American, any, and, and before they used every part of that animal, every single part. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so that's one thing, but I believe that the, you know, in the U S it, it's the, like 92% of the people are nutrient deficient. And, and so you got to imagine if that's but, the U S definitely not calorie US, deficient. Exactly. Such a good point. Right. <laughs> so they're getting they're getting food and I'm and I'm putting quotation marks because it's it's obviously not calorie rich food. It's not actually maybe even designated real food. It's processed and and it's calorie or it's it's nutrient def- deficient. And so I see that when when I think of like okay, if we have a 92% deficiency of nutrients, when we don't feel good in our body, we tend to treat people the way we feel. So if you're not feeling good in your body, you're not comfortable, maybe you're overweight, obese, anything like that. You have headaches all the time, any chronic issue, that's normally going to color how you treat other people. So if we can get people mm-hmm. to to increase their nutrients, to support their nutrient density, then maybe they'll feel better in their body and then in turn start treating other people better. And so I believe that that's how we're going to change things is to get people healthier and and for my money, I look at I look at organ meats as the as Mother Nature's multivitamin. So why aren't we oh, utilizing? Because sure. it's there, it's there for our taking. I t- I totally agree, and I totally back your mission as well. I think organ meats are profoundly impactful on nutrition because it's not just a little bit more nutrition than some other things. Like it's massive amounts of particular vitamins and minerals and that type of thing, and so it's such a you know, bang for buck. It's, it's your best bet basically. Yeah. And I love how you, you mentioned how, you know, back in the day, um, they would reserve the organ meats for, for women that were pregnant or trying to get pregnant. And that's actually how I end up talking about organ meats. So like, you know, what are the nutrients in organ meats? Well, there's vitamins, a B, all the B vitamins, particularly B12, you have C, D, E, and K. You have essential minerals like iron, you have calcium, copper, magnesium, selenium, phosphorus, potassium, zinc, folate. And these are all things, if you're familiar with prenatals, it's all the stuff in prenatals. It's like, uh, wait yeah. a second. <laughs> so you're synthetically creating a prenatal, but all we have to do is eat these organ meats and we're getting these nutrients plus they're bioavailable. They're easily absorbed into your body. Yeah, no, totally. Um, and the other thing is too with actual prenatal supplements and many supplements, like a lot of the um, nutrients that are in them, they're analogs, they're synthetic analogs that are not totally accurate of what the, what Mother Nature would provide in something like liver or even in vegetables as well, right? So, you know, it's not just a, oh, I can get this in a supplement. It's like, no, the supplement version is a secondary quality source, irrelevant of the factory that it came out of because it's, a, it's, an, it's an analog molecule. It's not the real thing, you know what I mean? Right, and, I, and I've been told though as well, I mean, maybe you know better, is that you're, sometimes your body can't absorb it all as well. Yeah, totally. You know, no, that's we, totally true. Because there is, there is a myth around, you know, oh, if I eat organ meats, I'm going to get too much vitamin A. But from the research I've, I've found... That when it's coming from a whole food source, you, you can't actually overdose on it. That 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 your body can, if it gets too much, it will just eliminate it. It will get rid of it. But if it's synthetic, whole other story. You actually can push yourself into a danger zone. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because um, I remember at uni uh, in in nutrition one or two or three, whichever one it was, but it, it, they said that yeah, pregnant women. Uh, in trimester one, have to be really careful with their um, vitamin A intake. And it specifically said don't consume liver in trimester one because of the vitamin A um, overdose, basically. So it's interesting that the research of whole real food sources 
um, yeah, it shows that that's not a problem at all. Well, that and that, that brings up the good question, right? Is like a lot of times when you're seeing research, what what are they doing the research off of? I know, like for example, like finding research done. So there's lots of research done on beef, for example, right? About mm-hmm. the effects of beef, but show me a re- show me research where it's hundred percent grass fed beef. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to find. Like you know, so yeah. so a lot of times you'll see these these research you know these this research done, and you'll think it's a blanket statement towards whatever the the, the product or the food that they're researching, but most of the time they're not adjusting or or testing for the quality of what they're of what they're testing. You know, of how it was yeah. raised, what it was fed, um, the stress levels it was under, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the other thing is I worked as a research scientist and, you know, the other factors that are not included, like the stress in their environment, the other things in their diet other than the supplement that they're measuring, you know, like there's so many other contributing or confounding factors that are maybe not included or just sort of written off as like, oh, yeah, they all kind of lived this way. And it's like, well, they're pretty, there's some pretty impactful ways on developing a fetus or a pregnant body, you know. And not to mention as well that there's multiple forms of vitamin A, as you know, and the precursors. Um, so it's like, you know, is it a particular, you know, one of the retinols or the retinoids or the carotenoids or is it all of them? Is it the whole family? Um, is the supplement putting in too much of one and the reason that it's overdosing is because not all the relevant precursors are there to break it down or divide it into its different um, subcategories? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and that, and that's precisely why I love, I mean, I've always, you know, you mentioned I, I have a chef background and I've always advocated for real food. To me, that's our first line of defense is what we put in our body. And so the more aware and conscious we can do that, the better off we are. And, and the, to me, you know, I've been in the field, as you mentioned, over 16 years, I've, I've seen, you name the trend, I've seen it. You know what I mean? I feel like when I first got into the culinary field, it was the flat, fat flush diet. That was the big diet of the, of the time. And then, of course, I've seen the master cleanse. I've seen, uh, you know, Adkins. Now we have carnivore. We have, you know, you name it. We've, I've seen it. But the one that always, to me, is not a trend, the one that all, I always come back to is just eat real food. I always promote the Jeff approach. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's just like, you know, try to get foods that are not, you know, that that don't have ingredients, but are ingredients, you know, that's kind of how I I, I talk to people about it. It's like, you know, like, you know, the the whole discussion about, you know, you you know, you see nowadays, the whole discussion around beef, for example, like impossible beef or the fake beefs or fake meats, versus just getting 100% grass fed beef. And I'm always like, just read the ingredients, you know, you get a packet, a pound (laughs) of ground beef, it has one ingredient, (laughs) you get impossible beef, and it's got a lot more. And like, right there, that's my stop. It's like, I want one ingredient. (laughs) That's it. I know. And then, then we've got governments and, um, and fast food chains leveraging this impossible burger or, you know, this vegan movement as if it's in the interest of health. And it's like, you're still at McDonald's. Like, it's not, it's not health. You know what I mean? Like, you're still yeah. at Burger King. You're still at, at these places. It's not a healthy alternative. But I guess that's why conversations and podcasts like this exist, right? To let people know that, you know, marketing is a very strategic and well thought out psychological manipulation of what you believe to be true. Um, and so, unfortunately, yes, these companies are masquerading as if they're making a step in the right direction for health or climate change. And that's a whole other rabbit hole of conversation. But uh, the reality is you're still at a fast food restaurant and there's still loads of ingredients that aren't your friend. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm curious how you, you, you thankfully do talk about organ meats. So how, what's your history with organ meats? Did you grow up eating them? Um, when did you get turned on to it? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so for me, it was just um, a pursuit of health information, basically. And so I guess, my, you know, in a nutshell, I started working in a cancer research hospital as part of a, a team of amazing uh, researchers. And I just basically learned by going to the World Health Organization in my first few months um, of being there, in the first sentence, it said on the website, the cancer page said, uh, diet, lifestyle, and tobacco cause 90 to 95% of cancers. And, I, and from that day, I was like, 
what the hell are we doing here? Nobody has cancer due to a lack of chemotherapy. Um, and so I just, went, I just went down the rabbit hole, you know, and just kept, and then I went into history. I was, I'm really interested in history. And so I started learning about a lot about how tribes ate uh, and, the, and the fact that many of these tribes that, you know, in theory, I mean, we don't truly know, but in theory could never have actually met one another to, to learn each other's food systems or medicine, medical systems. A lot of similarities existed. And, and one of those being that, you know, uh, I learned a lot about fasting and, and the fact that, you know, it was normal for humans to go several days or weeks at a time because going to hunt a beast was a physical risk to the men of the tribe and so you don't do that risk every day um you know and so you go and catch it and then you finish the whole lot because you don't have anywhere to store it uh you know you don't have a fridge to put it in right so you might cook it all up and sit around the fire um for a couple of days and everybody will feast and they'll take in loads of calories and loads of energy and then they'll chill out for a few days and then either the tribe will move and so i thought I wonder why we don't do that now. And then I just started looking down the rabbit hole and learning that, of, of course, these, you know, and I'm, I was, I'm a biologist, so I was like, of course, these super complex organs are much higher in nutrition than a muscle because their functionality in the body is far greater than, you know, just a basic muscle that has a very basic function where your liver is essentially doing thousands, if not millions of tasks compared to a muscle. And so I just was like, okay, if this is how real humans eat, Let's do it. Um, and so I just began basically and I began with the, the ratios. And I actually, I, I'll do it today. I did it yesterday, but I do sort of a kilo of mince to 10 or 20 grams of liver, you know, dice it up, mix it in, chuck in some flavor. Um, so I put been using your product recently, which is amazing. So uh, nice. that's basically my path. And I think too, the thing, you know, a lot of people screw their nose up at it and say that's disgusting, but they forget that, you know, we were once children as well, and it took us 10, 15, 20 times before we actually liked a particular food. And my mum even, you know, I'm in my 30s now, and even now my mum says, oh, you like that now, do you? Um, because <laughs> we forget that we have to expose ourselves to these flavours over and over again to recondition our palate, whereas adults we can just say, nah, I tried it once, didn't like it. And it's like, so for me, I just knew that that was the process. So I just pushed through, and now those flavours are totally normal to me. Is our organ meats a part of Australian cuisine much? Because, you know, you look at – it's not really in, in, in the U.S., but you look at other countries. You know, Mexico has a dish called menudo, which is, uses beef stomach. Um, Scotland has haggis, which is, uh, you know, heart, yeah. liver, and lungs mixed with suet. Uh, and it's usually made in the animal's stomach. Um, Ireland has blood sausage or black pudding. The U.K. has, you know, kidney – pie steak and kidney pie france has pates um mm -hmm. what does australia have anything in their quizzing yeah I, th I think because one australia well hang on white australia is very young um and we are just a mix of basically the whole world now like i live here in melbourne which is an extremely multicultural city you can Literally down the road, you could pick between an Ethiopian restaurant, a Vietnamese restaurant, um, an Italian restaurant, a Greek restaurant. Like Melbourne, Melbourne's food is amazing. It's extremely diverse, um, and that's a you know combination of immigration, uh, refugees as well. So there's lots here. So the the point of that being is that it's actually really hard to identify what Australian is, um, and and we actually, I mean, to go onto another layer of the conversation, we actually are so uh, diverse that. An Australian identity is even a confusing thing. Like we don't really have many traditions that are truly Australian, uh, so it's it's just an interesting thing. So food-wise, we we just inherit a lot of things from England, basically. However, I definitely know that my my grandmother um, and my great grandmother, when she was alive, would talk about the fact that it would be normal because you would go to the butcher and the organs would be cheap. So that's what they would right. buy to feed everybody, and nobody liked it, but they knew they had to eat it, um, and. So it's, it's, it's been normal in conversation with older people. Um, but in my life and my generation, I grew up in the countryside as well. It wasn't, it wasn't normal. I remember my dad liked mutton and every, everybody would thought that was really weird when I was younger. But now I obviously think it's awesome. <laughs> well, but mutton is just the goat, right? I mean, it's not necessarily organs, right? Yeah, but it's still... Yeah, oh, it's no, it was stomach. Oh, okay. He yeah. was specifically eating that, yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, yeah. that's so that's one of the things I was I set out to solve, you know, so so like I'm identifying that organ meats are the in, for my money, the most nutrient dense food on the planet. 
And I was like, but no one's eating it. So how can I how can I support people's health if they're not eating the food that I believe is one of the most nutrient dense foods on the planet? So I was like, well, uh, okay. So I got to solve the taste thing, but then I also need to solve people's lack of cuisine. You know, they don't necessarily know how to cook it. They don't want to touch yeah. it. They, you know, it's it's not. They're not used to that. And and that's when I started to conceive of pluck seasoning. Because I was very aware of like, you know, I'm a pusher of an- ancestral foods. I'm, I'm a big fan of ancestral foods. But I also respect the fact that, well, we have modern techniques that maybe our ancestors didn't have. Like, you know, I can access freeze-dried powdered organs. They could not back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. I thought, well, okay, that preserve, you know, by freeze- getting freeze-dried powdered organs, that preserves the organ that it, it's, it makes it shelf stable and it powders it. So you technically, you don't have to touch anything slimy or abnormal you don't have to know how to cook it and then i was like well i was like well what if i pair it with you know these spices and herbs to help offset it and i kind of worked with it for a year until i found i found you know the percentage the ratio like you were talking about for your mix and and the flavor that would would kind of inspire this gateway product because i really see pluck seasoning as the gateway for organ meats it's just it's so easy it tastes. I mean, you've tasted it. What do you think it tastes like, or or how do you how do you think it tastes? Mm. Yeah, I think it tastes great, and I've used it. On, we were talking before. I've used it on a bunch of different meats, and I really like it. And for anybody that's listening to this conversation, we'll put a link in the show notes for you to get your hands on some. It's it's a very unique taste, and not in a not in a like eating raw liver way. That's a very unique taste in a very confronting way. <laughs> um, but it's yeah, it's 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 a very it's almost like a deep earthy flavor um which Mm. kind of reminds me in some ways of like some of your indian dishes or your ayurvedic dishes with some of those really earthy root vegetables um so yeah that's that's how i would describe it but it's it's its own thing like i can't compare it to very much it's totally unique in that regard and i use spices a lot my sister has a spice company um she's also a chef so, so and my mum's a very good cook. She was going to be a chef in the navy. So I've been very fortunate to be around amazing cooks, diverse cooks, experimental cooks. Um, and you know, as a young man, I'm, I'm able to whip up and cook a lot of things very easily. And and so there's no spice mix I've ever had before that I can actually compare to pluck. But it's yeah, I'd wow. say earthy is a, is a good word. Now, are you familiar with umami? Yeah, the flavor. Yeah. Yeah, so umami, like, because that's how I tend to think of it, because uh, umami is like the, it's the fifth taste. So we have sweet, we have salty, we have sour, we have bitter. And then, and I think it was the 70s, a Japanese man discovered uh, that we actually have a fifth, which is umami, and it's completely unique. You know, and umami is in mushrooms, it's in tomatoes, and it's in meats, it's it's in lots of things, but it's definitely in organ meats. And so that's, I love hearing how it tastes to you because obviously, you know, we're in completely different countries, very distant countries. Mm-hmm. Um, your palate is, is, is different than mine probably because of that. And um, e- even mm-hmm. though we might both be eating ancestral foods, it's just, it's just inherently going to be different due to the country's style of yeah. culinary, you know, cooking. So I love hearing I love asking and hearing, you know, how it tastes to someone else because, you know, you mentioned this uh, just a moment ago about how the palate, you know, the, as kids versus adults. Well, I look at the palate. The palate to me is a living, breathing organism. And and mm-hmm. just like you said, we can we can change it like we should never just accept that this flavor, that flavor is bad, because particularly if it's something that's that's probably good for you. Um because your palate can be shifted. I mean, if you get someone off of sugar, for example, for 14 days, get them off anything that tastes like sugar and anything that converts quickly into sugar in their in their body. And then so just take them off for 14 days and then give them a glass of wine. And let's just say before that 14 days, they were drinking three glasses a night. Well, you give them that glass, they'll struggle to even drink half of it because it will be so sweet to them. Because in those 14 days, we yeah. will have shifted their palate, Right. So the palate can be absolutely been manipulated. It can change. It's glorious. And a lot of people don't see it like that. And so umami, 
the, the fifth flavor is a is an amazing flavor because of it because what it does is it makes the other four it it, it brings out the flavor of the other four so it actually makes food taste better and it triggers the part of your brain that uh, basically wants to eat more. So what's cool about pluck being umami's focus or, or forward, I would say, is that A, it's a great way to get the organ meats into anyone's diet, but particularly kids. And now you're helping to shift that kid's palate in a beautiful way. You're in, Let's say it's a picky eater, right? So now they're getting this umami into their palate umami is more like a savory flavor so now their 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 palate is shifting to accept more f- savory flavors instead of maybe more sweet flavors and so now mm-hmm. their palate might be more accepting of these other new flavors that you want to introduce to them later so not only are you getting when you're giving kids pluck not only are you, are you increasing the nutrients in their diet but you're also helping to shape reshape their palate which i just you know, as a chef, that just thrills me to no end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that makes total, total sense. And I think as well, one thing, um, and if we can talk about disease and microbiome diversity, but a lot of people get stuck in like three or four or five meals in rotation. And therefore, yeah. <clears throat> not only does their palate suffer, but um, yeah, their lack of microbiome diversity, they have species die out. They have gut issues uh, because there's just a lack of diversity in their nutrient intake. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I love that you talk about that on your to to people and on your podcast because not enough people are thinking about the gut and and their gut health. You know, we we hear it more like it's the second brain, you know, and I, I. I, you know, I have to tell a story just because it just happened to me. I was at this entrepreneur's um, conference. And so, I mean, these are some big, you know, big names some really like established business owners, you know, very intimidating group because I see myself as, you know, a young lad in this in this realm, you know, like I'm newer to having a food product and they're, they're very established. A lot of people in this group, um, I learned a lot. But what's so fascinating is whenever nutrition came up, I would say 85% of them didn't know a thing about nutrition, didn't know a thing about like the gut or like that, that this one woman was talking about, oh, my cholesterol is so high. And, I'm, and she's like, I tried to go vegan and, and I, I, I didn't lose weight. It didn't change my cholesterol. I'm like, well, but you know why cholesterol exists, right? You know, it's, it's, it's usually due to an inflammatory response, you know, and I was just talking and she was like, mm-hmm. no one has ever talked to me like this. Like no one. And I'm like, oh man, like. So I just kept meeting person after person, very uh, established, wealthy people, and they still didn't understand nutrition and how food affects their body. Yeah, it's and it's so common. And, and you know, we're in this world, which like I kind of said at the start, you know, this medically driven narrative, which is that you need drugs to survive or to just stay out of the I'm almost dead category on your blood results, um, which is... You know, it's one thing to stay alive and it's another thing to actually thrive and be in control and enjoy your experience of existing in this reality and making the most of it. And I think, yeah, like all this marketing of fast food and fast pills and it really promotes the idea that you don't need to do anything to to experience life. But I'm yet to come across a client or people in my Facebook group or wherever I meet them or podcast listeners that are like, yeah, I love being this way. It's like the reason we're in a conversation is because they're like, I don't love being this way and I'm struggling to get control and I need your help. Well, and that's the sad truth. And, and it really, this is, if someone can solve this, they will solve the world. They'll solve one of the, the, the most devastating parts of our society. And I'm talking all societies that people tend to not make changes until to their diet, until they've had either, um, a, you know, a, a a health scare or someone close to them has died like it, it literally takes that much to move them to make changes we're we're such creatures of habit and you know i think covid was a perfect um example of 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 human nature which is so a lot of emotions got churned up when covid first started right and where did people go people dropped most people dropped any health habits that they had adopted over the last few years they dropped them and they just defaulted to yeah. all comfort foods to addictive you know addictive yeah. things like alcohol drugs and and they just and then you know now people are talking about the covid 20 where because the, they gained 20 20 pounds during the last few years yeah. and you know when i look at that 
I, I, I hear you about, you know, everyone wants that magic pill, but the reality is it doesn't exist. But yet it doesn't, does, doesn't change the fact that as humans, we want it. We don't want to have to work every single day for our health. We just don't. We don't want to do it. It, it takes, there's only a handful of, few, of people that are willing to do that. And, and, you know, hopefully this changes over time. But that's what really made me think about, well, for health to really, for, for there to be like a health change, then as someone who's an entrepreneur and someone who's trying to support people's health, I need to create something that doesn't need a new habit. And so that's where that's the power of pluck because we already all season our food. We already do it. We already everyone yeah. salts and peppers or whatever does something to their food. So all I'm saying now with pluck is like this is a health habit that does not require you to go, you know, running for 30 minutes every day. It doesn't require you to buy, <laughs> you know, to 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 buy some mechanical device that vibrates on your back, you know, and you got to use it 15. It's like nothing like that. I'm just saying, look, you already season your food. Let's season it with the incredibly nutrient-dense organ meats through pluck. And now there's no new habit and you just, you just use it. The more you use it, the more nutrients you get. It's kind of like micro-dosing. You know, you're getting yeah. small amounts of nutrients. But the, the more – like I, I describe it as micro-dosing plus frequent use equals a cumulative effect. Mm -hmm. it's, that, it's that easy. But no new habits. And, and I just believe the more we can create real food solutions like that, the more health, the more we'll make eating healthy, the more we'll make getting healthy more achievable. Because at the end of the day, we're all human and we're inconsistent. So how yeah. do we support consistency? Yeah, I, t I totally agree. And I think as well, like once upon a time, eating all of these foods they were 100 it was 100% dependent on our survival and so when we've got our reptilian brain in the process of being like hunt this animal and eat its organs versus uh netflix yeah. kfc like <laughs> it's not dependent on our survival so I, I like the fact that you're trying to um the, or that you are successfully you know you're just taking over a habit that already exists yeah i i, th I think you're so right on it's it's really fun i mean the the level of disconnect we have with our food right i mean you know yeah. uh, i know uh joel salatin of polyface farms in virginia he he talks about this he's like you know you don't you don't connect a that it's from an animal if you're eating meat you usually don't connect it to that animal because you're only seeing a part of the animal and then it's it's sometimes it's de skin sometimes it's deboned so you're not even associating it with an animal yeah and then it's behind plastic yeah you know what I mean? So you, you, there's no sense of immediacy. There's no sense of primal, you know, uh, tapping that primal brain of like a hunt, hunter gatherer. There's no sense of it. It's just like, eh, I think I'll have that boneless, skinless thing today and maybe I'll have that tomorrow. And, you know, it's just so disconnected. Yeah, I agree. I think as well, like even the use of cutlery contributes to that lack of, um, you know, yeah, because it's obviously normal to use your hands and there's still plenty of cultures around the world which use their hands to eat. Um, I actually had housemates at one point in my 20s, uh, both of them Nepalese guys, and we literally had one fork in the house and it's the fork that I brought oh. with me. Like Brilliant. it was, yeah, it was so normal to, to have that experience of like pulling, you know, um, like a chicken apart with your hands or pulling whatever, you know, was on the bone, you know, apart with your hands and, and eating it and, and all the juices running down your face. You know, that was normal. It wasn't like an embarrassing scenario to be in. <laughs> oh, I love that you're bringing this up. My daughter, so my youngest daughter, well, my, oh, I should preface this. So my mother when she eats chicken, like she eats chickens or turkeys, she sucks on the bones and yeah. she's done that. That's how she was raised to do it. And I always, there was a level of growing up where I was like, Oh, that's kind of gross. Right. But I didn't, <laughs> you know, didn't judge her for it, but it just kind of, I didn't personally do it. But now I have a, I have a young daughter uh, who's five and she just instinctively does it. Oh, like nice. no one else is modeling it. She just does it. She like gnaws on those bones and sucks them and bites them. And I'm like, yeah, you go, girl. That is how we're supposed to do it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. I do. The, I do the same now, and people think I'm a bit weird when I like. Yeah, or I or I get um, I'll get like a chopstick and try and 
like clear the end of the bone out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> so I'm curious yeah. to ask as well. Um, so for people that are new to organs, like obviously pluck is a great source, but there's this guy on Instagram that everybody talks about and it's the liver king, right? The liver king. Yeah. yeah. So like raw, that brings up the question of like raw organs or cooked organs because, and, and, and at what point does cooking organs mean that nutrition profile goes down or is damaged? How should we engage with them in the kitchen? Oh, this is such a great question. So, and the liver king, I, I, you know, I, I bow to him. He, he is walking his talk. He, he, <laughs> he might be, he might stand out to people as, you know, uh, kind of, uh, absurd or something like that, but he's been around a long time and, uh, you know, I love people that that promote things, but then look the part. You know, I mean, he's built. You know, he's crazy fit. You know what I mean? So oh, totally. He um, may or may not have a side of steroids, but he does eat organs. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, but but uh, yeah. So in tr- so I, you know, heat is always going to denature protein. It will always do that. That's we can't we can't get around that. I mean, heat destroys vitamins and nutrients. But the one good thing is when it's encased in a real as a real food, it's going to be a little bit more protected. Mm-hmm. Um so that's why you know oils, you know that are exposed that have been uh removed from their from their source and then they're put in clear bottles and the sun hits them that it's going to denature them even faster. That's why a lot of times the really quality oils um you know, like the extra virgin olive oils, you'll see that they're in dark glass, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You're trying to help the light and the heat not not destroy them. So, so heat will always destroy the nutrients. But the the question is, is how much? And and so that's why I, I always think that getting organs in the diet is more important than not getting them. So if you prefer to eat organs cooked. Then get, then I say cook them because I would much rather have you eat organs than not eat them. But now, does that mean you only should eat cooked? No, I mean there's there there's a few different options. So like one is is um, called liver shots, and so what you do is you got to make sure, you want to make sure when you get your liver that it's been frozen for at least fourteen days. That's that's how sushi is done as well. When whenever you purchase sushi. Uh, at a at a restaurant or at a store, it's been frozen for fourteen or more days, and that's just to help to kill off any any parasites, anything like that. And and so you want your organs to also have been frozen if you're eating them raw. And once it, you pull it out of the freezer, then what you can do is let it defrost just a little bit so you can cut into it. And then what I what I recommend for these liver shots is you just do these like little bite size. I mean, I'm talking tiny, you know, like maybe a half of a teaspoon size mm-hmm. of raw liver. Just keep it raw. And then you put them on a sheet tray yep. and keep them separate and then freeze them like that. Okay. So then put them back in the freezer. And now you have little, little pieces of liver that are, that are raw, that are it's small enough where you can put it into your mouth and just swallow it whole. And you don't have to taste it and you don't have to cook it. You don't have to bite into it. The whole point is you want to be able to swallow it so that you don't get that liver taste if you don't want that liver taste but that's a really great way to get raw raw organs into your diet um some of them another way to do it if you're ever concerned is you can um you can uh basically marinate them in like some apple cider vinegar or some lemon juice to help kind of like pull out any kind of impurities Mm -hmm. um that always helps but I'm a big fan of just get them in your diet. So however you're, however you're, you're willing to eat them, then that's the right way in my judgment. When you said impurities there, it um, struck a chord in my mind, which is a conversation I've had with a number of clients and different groups that have been through my programs. Because when I talk about liver, a lot of people think, Liver, when I drink alcohol, that's bad for my liver. Does that mean all of the bad things that the animal has ever been exposed to are stored in the liver? Can you talk to that yeah. point and the, the sort of myths and misconceptions around toxins in the liver? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll share it how I talk about it, but I'd love to hear how you talk about it as well if, if I say it differently. Um, but so that is absolutely a myth that the tox, that toxins are stored in organs. They're actually not at all. If anything, they're stored in the fat. Mm-hmm. And, but our organs exist. One of the things you mentioned earlier, are, are the organs do 
thousands of things. I mean, organs are integral to our survival, right? They, and they have so many functions. But one of those functions is to take toxins and turn them into more water-soluble you know, turn them, make them more water soluble so they can leave your body, Mm -hmm. you know, and how do they leave your body through sweat, through poop, through pee, but the, the organs are just supporting the process of getting them out of your body. And so They're not at all the place where it gets stored. However, you can, if you're an unhealthy person, you can start to build up certain things like you can get fatty liver disease, you know. And so, of course, in the fat around your liver, you might be getting some toxins stored because that's where they would store. Mm -hmm. But the organs themselves would not inherently be where it gets stored. Yeah, and and that's pretty similar to the way I describe it. I I say the liver is uh, mainly a sorting organ. It sorts things and Mm. sends them on their way, kind of like the post office, right? Um, Right. That's a great way to tell it. It's one of the reasons why they're so nutrient-dense is because they they use all the vitamins and minerals to support that process. Yeah, absolutely. And and obviously, like as we know, the function of the body fat is to put the excess out of the way, like physically out of the way, so the organs can continue doing their job. Yeah, yeah. It's it, and and I find that those we kind of have captured the two myths that I've heard the most, which is what you just brought up is is uh, the myth that organ meats are um, the storage place for toxins, and then the other is that I can um, you know the vitamin A that I can overdose with vitamin A if I'm eating organs. But those are the two myths that I hear the most. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Um, so I love your product. I've got it in the cupboard. It's amazing. Where can everybody find you, Pluck, everything online? So the website right now is where we're sold. It's Eat Pluck. Uh, that's E-A-T-P-L-U-C-K dot com. And um, you definitely want to make sure you you get on our newsletter list because, of course, if you're in Australia, um, you're listening to this podcast – I'm sorry. The shipping is high. It's not my fault. We don't. We don't. We don't pad it. It's just the real cost. But we offer lots of discounts to help helps offset that. Because right now we're only available in the U.S. on our site, and we really do hope to be uh, eventually distributed and maybe even manufactured in Australia or New Zealand and to serve that population. Because I, as I said, you know, my mission is to get organ meats in people's diets and. I, we all need it. Every country, we all need it. So I'm hoping I can better serve um, the Aus- Australia crowd and, and New Zealand crowd the more I can. Uh, so eatpluck.com for, to make purchases. And then you can follow us on social media at eatpluck as well. My personal is Chef James Berry. I kind of put a little different, um, a little bit of different content on my social media than Pluck does. But um, e- either, either one is, is going to be a great resource for organ meats and uh, just in general how to think and look, look uh, at the food you purchase and eat. Amazing. Thanks, man. And I'll put all of those links down in the show notes below. And for listeners, um, one of the discounts James just mentioned, you can go to the link down below, the Eat Pluck link, uh, and chuck in Maddie 10 and that'll give you a little bit of a discount as well uh, because I'm also totally on board with getting more organs into people's lives. And as well, if you've enjoyed this episode or you know people that need to change up their health or have some you know, reactions to the idea of organ meats and you want to debunk those reactions, feel free to share this episode or share it on social media and tag us both and to wrap up james with the journey you've been on with your cooking and your health and everything that you've done what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about you know we we sort of mentioned it here because you i think the obvious thing for me to say is like well eat eat more organ meats right (laughs) but i feel like i've hammered that point (laughs) the entire podcast so i'll i'll give a different different answer Mm um i learned not until I was in my 20s, how food affected my health. I got a kidney stone. Um, I was just out of college, out of university, and I experienced one of the most painful, you know, things I think a a male can experience um, that's closest properly to giving birth, uh, which is getting that kidney stone. It was so painful. Um, I was scared. I didn't know what it was. And uh, I got, went to the hospital. I passed the stone and the first question I said was, how did I get this? And luckily, I had a doctor that said, well, what have you been eating? Right. And, and I said, oh, well, I was eating pizza and drinking root beer. And he said, well, you weren't drinking water? And I said, no. And he said, well, that's why you got this. And I said, 
Oh, and that was the first moment. Well, A, I, I, from that moment on, I always carry water everywhere I go mm-hmm. was first. But B, that was the first moment where I connected that the food I eat affects my health. And I know that seems like such a simple concept, but I guarantee there are still people out there that don't understand that, that the choices we make with our food will affect our health. And you may not feel it in the moment. Or you, you, well, A, you might be feeling in the moment, but you're just not in touch with your body to realize it, it's kind of like what you said earlier, that your norm is, is so chronically ill that you don't realize that your norm is not good. Mm-hmm. So that might be one thing, or you're not even connecting it and then you're going to pay for these choices later on down the road. So the more we can actually connect that our food is going to support and or determine our health. I feel like you're already then now on the right track. And I also would advise that if whenever there's an ailment, whenever there's something that goes on, and I don't care how small or how big, immediately go to what am I eating? Like have food be the first thing you look at. Go to the doctor if you think it's serious. But if your doctor doesn't ask you about your food, you need to still think about it. Still look at what am I eating What's the environment I am? How much sleep am I getting? Am I stressed out all the time? But it's got to start with food, I think, because that's the thing we do all the time. Every single day we're eating or drinking. So we got to look there first. I am 100% on board with that. Absolutely. So I appreciate you sharing that. Man, thanks so much. This has been a beautiful conversation and I'd really love to have more in the future. So thanks for being here and sharing your knowledge. And yeah, I'm happy to help you get pluck out into the world. Yay. Thank you, Matty. And thanks so much for uh, allowing me to join and share sharing this message with your audience. Thank you so much. Uh, you're more than welcome. We'll catch you soon. All right. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.